Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, here we are. Oh, man, I, I keep looking at 2 Samuel 11, the story of Bathsheba, and wow, this thing is layered with complications and relationships and impact and you know it's oh man this story has been used so many different ways because of all the layers that are there it's not it's not a it's not a bad thing that that people use this story to do a lot of stuff i think what's unfortunate as i've said many times in this podcast is no one really has the time to un, uh, to unravel it all. Uh, they they can, you know at the very best you can only mention the layers that are involved. Most of the time you're trying to prove a point with scripture, which is fine. We're going to take some time and try and peel back a lot of the layers to this: the cultural layers, the relational layers, the translation translation meaning of words layers like we're, we're just uh, and and even like i just keep staring at it thinking i'm still not going to get to the bottom of this and that's fine that's fine i hope i hope i as i do with all of this podcast uh that that there are things that i say uh nuances to stories that make you go wait i want to read that again i i, I want to dig in again you know bob asked that question like what if I want to figure out what I believe about that. I, uh, you know, anyways, that's that's what I want. I really just I love telling the stories and I love engaging people's minds and hearts again with these stories to say, okay, maybe what I what I've always said about the story isn't isn't as simple as I make it sound. And that's as uh, many times the story about Sheba becomes a simple story for people. Well, this is about lust. And lust brings forth, you know, sin and sin brings forth death and boom, boom, boom. You know, David fell. David falls. This is the falling of David. Uh, you know, this, sometimes this is the, you know, they, they, make a, they make a really great list of things that occur, like, this is this is how this is how sin uh, brings forth death, and they'll have. Uh, I, I'm looking for one here. Somebody, yes, yeah, stage one. I, I read this. Uh, you know, being drawn away, being enticed, uh, lustful desires are conceived. Lustful desires give birth to sin. Sin becomes full grown. Sin brings forth death, and and all that's like true. All that's all that's true. But it also doesn't uh, it doesn't capture everything. So we're just gonna try. We're just gonna try. I don't. I have no idea how far we'll get today. I will try to not. I, I'd rather break this up into a couple podcasts than than again try to try to rush it. So we'll just start chapter eleven, verse one. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah. David remained in Jerusalem. So this often, uh, this this little verse often gets, I wouldn't say misinterpreted, but I think it gets um, the nuances of it are are lost because. Because people don't remember that David had been requested by his by his men to stay at home from uh, I believe it's chapter twenty three. And if you go to chapter ten, where we just finished uh, last week, it's clear David had done this before. He he wasn't. I remember as a kid, I re, uh, middle school. I remember, you know, some some really intense preacher talking about the the lustful sin of David and Bathsheba, and it's funny to me that I still remember it. But he he was like, you see, David was in when he should have been out. 
He was up when he should have been down because of the next verse. He was doing all the wrong things. David stayed home when he should have been out with his men at war. This is when kings go off to war. This this is when kings go off to war. This is, you know, David David stayed home. He he was lazy. He was overconfident. And and I I get it. I do. Because that is often what happens when we when we walk into sin, when we give into lustful desires. We're overconfident. We we're in places we shouldn't be doing things we don't normally do. I, I, all that's true. So I'm not, I don't take it away from the, from the lesson, but I just, in my study, I don't think that this was unusual at this point in David's life. They had asked him not to come to war anymore. They were going to siege, put a, put a siege on the city, which means basically we're going to, we're going to pound their army in the valley and when their army retreats, we're going to surround the capital city and we're going to lock them in. And and siegings took on different, you know, different um, nuances, I guess. Sometimes, uh, like in Jerusalem, that city was so well watered that they literally could live there in the city walls with, without, a, without a problem because they had a, a water source and they would literally just plant uh, grain and corn and all that in the streets and they'd irrigate it and then the people would be like, you know, fine. Like, you guys can sit outside, we'll sit inside. Eventually, you're going to get tired. Like, you can't pay all these guys. All these guys are eventually need to go home. They, they've got their own farms. They've got their own livelihoods and you're – your troops will go down and then our troops will come out and we'll be able to, you know, win the battle. So it's, it's this, you know, act of, of will basically. So they, they send Joab out. Why? Cause he's a legend. He's an amazing general. The men follow him. He's passionate. He's a, he's a good warrior for David. Even, even though periodically he does go off and do his own thing, David trusts him and he loves him. And, and, and they get along. They have a really great working relationship. I don't think he's one of David's friends. Like, I don't think David shares his heart with Joab. But they do share a ton of battle experiences. They share some pretty tight spots that they've gotten into and out of. They probably have done battle back to back. They have they have both ended up with blood of the same, you know, warrior on their faces as they've as they've done battle together. Like they this is a this is not like David being like, hey, uh, Joab, I, you know, I'm going to put you in charge now. You know, I'm kind of kind of tired. I'm kind of feeling, uh, you know, middle aged. I got the middle aged spread. I've put on a little weight over the winter. I uh, can't run as fa- no, no. I mean, I I do know that people have preached it that way. And they've used it, you know, especially like at men's uh Usually David and Bathsheba, you know, often, I shouldn't say uh, often, it's like at a men's conference or or men's, you know, group. Well, you know, men, you know, you're feeling a little lethargic, your testosterone's down a little bit, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing what you should be doing in order to keep yourself out of trouble. If David had gone to war with his men like he'd always done before, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble. He shouldn't have been at the palace. He should have been out at the out of the battlefield. If you're not doing battle for for you know what? Uh, oh, well, come on, Bob. <laughs> I can't remember. If you're not doing battle, you know, then you're gonna then you're then you're falling apart. Um, careless. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That I just I just I knew I'd wrote it down. Somebody somebody wrote like. So many, so many conquerors have been defeated because they've they've gotten careless after so many victories. They don't go out. Uh, they get they get out of the battle mind, mindset. They get out of the warrior mindset, and they and they no longer uh, you know are putting up the defenses that they need to put up anymore. You know when you're young and you're and you're. Uh, uh, attractive and you're you're ready like you're ready if somebody flirts with you or 
or if you see something that you you know that you know you shouldn't you do the battle it's like no i'm not going to look there no i'm not going to i'm not going to turn on that that video no i'm not going to you know walk in that bar anymore i'm not going to walk in that, that restaurant anymore because those women are scantily clad they they let their their no not going to do it like their cheeks hang out or their other things hang out or whatever whatever and and it's the same you know uh well, I don't know if it's the same because I'm not a woman. Ta-da! There's a revelation for you. But the, if you don't do the battle, if you're not out doing battle, then you'll, you're overconfident and you'll fall. Now, there's truth to that. There is truth that if you're not doing the battle, you you will fall. You do have to be vigilant. You do have to be alert. You do have to you do have to pay attention. But the fact that David wasn't at battle, I don't think is a big deal. I think this is part of the agreement that he had. That he that we get referenced for in chapter twenty three. So there you go. That's what I think is going on. David sends Joab. He sends the king's men, the whole Israelite army. Now the king's men would have been his personal guard. Not all of them. I'm sure he had guards at the palace, but he probably sent Benaiah with a with a contingency of his own personal guards why because they're amazing warriors and when the battle is almost won they will call for david and david will ride out and he will ride into the city victorious and that was that was a very humble arrangement that joab had with the king you stay home we'll do the tough work you get to ride in victorious. You get credit for all the victories, which he had done. And I think it was chapter eight or no, where were we? Chapter nine or 10? No, chapter nine. Uh, because that's where the list of all the, all the nations that had been subdued, all the cities that they had overrun and all the people that were now under uh, agreements with the, with the country, bringing wealth and servants and, riches into the into their into their homes so all of that's going on all that's going on in the first chapter or in the first verse they were going to have a fight with the ammonites and then they were going to besiege their capital city they planned on victory they had a great strategy joab was in charge he was going to make this happen david got up from his bed one night an evening and walked around the roof of the palace. Oh, again, this is not an unusual activity. He did not. It, this is the evening was was anywhere after after three p.m. So, because of the heat of the day, guys would you know guys everyone would would tended to find a cool spot. And in essence, take a nap. They would just kind of, you know, hang out somewhere because it was hot. So there it is. It's probably late afternoon because everybody would go back to work in the afternoon. If you've ever been to the Middle East, then then you probably are aware of this. This is also true a lot in Europe. It, that That culture was built around this afternoon siesta these these afternoon um times of rest now they didn't always take a nap sometimes they'd sit around a pot of of tea or a or um a hookah whatever and they they just sit and in essence fellowship they'd hang out uh and have long conversations uh, the various businessmen the the elders of the city and then after you know a few hours when the sun kind of waned a little bit and the weather would begin to cool then they'd go back to work and they'd work until this you know often until the sun disappeared they didn't have an evening meal until good grief like sometimes they didn't even they you know they wouldn't eat till nine o'clock at night it's it's that it wasn't that unusual so the fact that he got up from his bed in the evening again is not it's it's not that he was up when he should have been down, which is the the reference back to my middle school days. That you know he should have been in bed. He'd been sleeping all day, lazing around, 
not paying attention to his health, not paying attention to his um, his you know his personal hygiene. He's just lazing. He should have been at battle. He's a little depressed, maybe uh, you know, a little despondent because he he wasn't doing what he you know was designed to do as a man. He should have been you know out. But, uh, I've just I've heard it all, which is uh, not. It's just not entirely true to the culture of when this thing was written. That's all. It's not It's not that people are making bad points. I think they're just doing bad research. All those things are true for, for, for lust. You, you do need to be alert. You do need to be aware. You shouldn't be places where you where you shouldn't be. You should know where you, you should be. You shouldn't be lazing around, getting despondent, uh, getting bummed out. You know, some 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 teachers, preachers will say, well, you know, he had all these wives and concubines, so he was a you know a sex addict. He was he was constantly sleeping with women. So he had he had uh, you know he'd broken the principle of that God had set in the garden, where it should be one woman for one man for for their life, and and David had had given into the cultural expectation that he, the multiple wives and concubines and and so he he was having sex all the time. He had he, you know, women were of of little value to him, and except for his own lust, and and lust was out of control. And and he was you know on the prowl. He was up because it was nighttime, and he knew he could look for more women. And oh my word, like again, the the concept is true. I just don't think you can draw it academically from this passage and be true to the passage. I'm not saying that. <laughs> that that the principles of lust shouldn't be uh, illustrated and and discussed. They should be because we do need to be careful. But but along that same line, what I've found in my thirty plus years of ministry is another principle of the kingdom, which is you reap what you sow. And if you are constantly talking about Lust. If you are constantly protecting yourself from falling into sin, then you will reap the you'll reap the fruit of constantly being uh, on guard against sin, and you'll give in to sin. It's it's ridiculous. I've 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 met people. I've been in cultures where this is all about it. Right? Oh man, all the all pastors do and youth pastors talked about was ways that they protected themselves from falling into sin, especially, you know, when I was a young youth pastor, right? I'm 20, yeah, 20 years old, 19, I think I started uh, uh, in a part-time role, but, you know, you're, 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 as, you're barely older than the people that you're, quote, pastoring. And yes, you, I think you do have to be alert to that, but to focus on it, you actually, you actually, you actually are planting these seeds that say, Oh, I'm going to give in. Oh, I got to be careful. I'm going to give in. I'm going to give in. Lust is going to get me. Lust is going to get me. I'm going to I'm going to sexually sin. I'm going to I'm going to fall in love with a teenager. I I'm, I'm going to do the wrong thing and you're you're in this culture where you're constantly planting these seeds of failure and then you're trying to keep the fruit from growing. The focus needs to be on on godly principles because then you're planting the seeds of godly principles and you're reaping the benefits of that so it's really about planting seeds of being the protector of innocence planting seeds of being the one who's been now entrusted with all of these young beautiful innocent lives and your role as a protector a hedge is not a role of Oh my God! I'm gonna I'm gonna give in! I'm gonna give in! Oh, she's so beautiful! Don't think those thoughts! Don't think those thoughts! But she is! Oh my word! Look at her! Oh, don't think those thoughts! Don't think those! I gotta beat myself up! I gotta I gotta go repent! I gotta fast! I gotta fast! I'm gonna fast for 400 days straight! No water! No food! I've gotta beat this lust out of me! I'm gonna! It's it! Oh, that's that's honestly that's narcissism. That's the that's Greek Gnosticism. 
the Romans were like, well, you just give into it because the flesh is the flesh. You feed the flesh. It doesn't impact your spirit. Just do whatever you want. And the Greeks were like, you got to beat your body into submission. And they had all kinds of ways to literally beat themselves into submission so that they wouldn't give in to the lust of the flesh. Glory. Well, I I totally I uh, totally lived in those worlds and I watched a number of my youth pastor friends give in to the lust of the flesh and sleep with with younger women and some of some of my friends were uh maybe they weren't youth pastors they were youth leaders they had been recruited by the pastor you know, them, they were young, married people, but they gave in. It's, you, you got to be careful of the seeds that you sow. I don't, I don't, well, you know, I'm going to try and unpack all the stuff that David might have been going through on this, on this time in his life. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's as easy as he was a little despondent, little, little uh, overweight, uh, had given up on being a warrior and and he slept all day and now he's up at night on the prowl because he's he's a sex addict it's it's uh i I just don't think you can be academically true and and draw those conclusions from the words that are written. I could be wrong and that's fine. This is uh, my podcast. I get to be wrong in my own way, but but just consider those things because it is it is it is something we have to be aware of. You reap what you sow. You get what you focus on. And your best battle against the lust of the flesh is to focus on loving Jesus and loving people, having His perspective on who they are. Because then you begin to protect it. You begin to encourage it. You begin to be a source of life for those people, not a source of lust. Because if you start giving in, if you start focusing in on, on why, why would I give in to the lust of the flesh? I got to, I got to protect my, I got to, I got to think through all the reasons why I would give in to the lust of the flesh and, and sleep with somebody or, or want to sleep with them because if I think it in my heart, it's the same as doing it in, in, in reality. I need to, I need to, why, what is wrong? What is wrong? And what are you doing? You're focusing on what's wrong. What's wrong with me or what's wrong with my marriage? Well, she doesn't do this. I bet you, I bet you somebody else would. Oh, it just goes, or he, he doesn't listen. He doesn't listen. He doesn't spend time. You know, if uh, this person seems to love to be with me, loves to listen to me. It just, it sends you down some pretty crazy paths. And, and you can destroy a lot of things. So David got up from his bed. He walked around the roof of his palace. This probably walking around thing was something he did on a regular basis. And it wasn't just, you know, a, a five-minute walk. He probably conducted business up there. People would come and find him up there. I Listen, I I did something similar when I ran a youth camp. It was, uh, I called it my afternoon office, my outdoor office. So I, I, I am a routine person. I like to do the same routine. Even if life isn't going in a routine way, like I tend to get up about the same time of day every day. It's early. As I say on my, on my, uh, uh, my webpage, I'm known to be a morning person. It's true. It's why I'm down here usually at 6 a.m. recording because I've literally already been up for an hour and a half. I am, I am coffeeed up. I have probably put down a, close to a, over 100 ounces of water, so I am hydrated. I am caffeined. Uh, I am I am like looking around for things to do. So this is what I do. I come down and do this now. Some like my wife isn't in town right now. She's uh she's off doing uh, something with her family. So. I'm still up at my normal time. I get up, I do my routine. 
Okay, so, oh, why, why were you telling this story? Oh, yeah, the engineer's like, Bob, the camp story. Yes, I know. I, I, I'm, I actually appreciate you saying that because I couldn't remember why I was telling people about my life. So at camp, I had this, uh, the same sort of thing. I got up 4.30 in the morning. I'd do my routine. I'd actually go down to my office at 5 a.m. I'd work there for about an hour and a half. I'd go home, make coffee for my wife. Then I'd go back down uh, at seven to get the you know to to get the kids up. Uh, breakfast was at seven thirty. Like just I had a routine. In the afternoon after lunch, I would I would hit the road. I'd go for a run. I get done with my run. I get done with my shower. Uh, whatever it'd be like two thirty three o'clock. I get done with my shower. I get stop by my main office and then at four o'clock when there was a what, what we called like cabin activities right everybody's with their cabin I would take my radio and which was with me all the time and I'd go sit at a particular um, picnic table that overlooked the lake out by the out by the beach and I would just sit there and I would I would often just sit quietly because I'd love to listen to the sounds of camp I love to hear the and and observe the movements of campers and and their and their awesome counselors that mostly that I had all personally recruited and and I could hear and smell what was going on in the kitchen as they were preparing dinner and I could I could hear the clanking of of dishes on the in the dining hall as people were you know setting up the buffet lines and putting out the silverware and I would hear the maintenance guys driving by uh, with a lawnmower or walking by with a, you know, with a weed whacker or something like that. And I'd, you know, we'd wave and say, say hello or talk about something like there was just simple things that I would do in the, in the afternoon. And that would have been the quote evening time that David would have been on the roof. The sun was going down, but it was still plenty, you know, you still had a couple hours of it up, but it's, it was going down and, and, you know, for me, there might be a breeze some nights. Sometimes the, the lake was perfectly still. It was like glass. It just, I'd watch the boat float back and forth in the water, uh, watch fishermen go by in their rowboats or their little, their little, um, their little motorboats. It, it was, it was just simple. There was also camps across the lake and I would listen for those sounds and hear their squealing out in the, uh, playing in the waterfront. And sometimes my radio would, you know, somebody would be like calling me on the radio or need an answer for something, and I'd give it to them. They, usually they were back in the office. Somebody, hey, Bob, so-and-so's on the phone. I'd be like, oh, yeah, just take a message. Or I'd be like, yep, all right, you know, I'll come I'll come back. It wasn't that far of a walk. So when I, when I hear that David's walking on the roof, I consider this to be that sort of thing. It was a regular routine. He got up in the afternoon. And he went out on the walk uh, to walk on the roof of his palace, and he observed the city. He listened to the city. He was he he could you know catch the smells of the city. This is not an odd thing for a ruler to do. He loved the life that was going on. There was there was construction going on. Remember the terraces are being built. The new government buildings are going up. He's he's expanding. He's he's in you know there's 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 fascinating things to watch. All of this stuff is you know creative uh, engineering that's that's occurring to to move the logs into place to backfill into into the terrace to make sure that the the new building is is constructed on something that's sound you know the stones that are being laid the the chisels of the of the craftsmen that were, you know, I don't know, putting together the entrance or carving the doors. These are all things that a king would have been interested in, especially a king as multidimensional as David. David was always looking on the lookout for the next leader that, that could be in charge of something. He was fascinated by what was going on and what, what uh, his city looked like. He was he was a legend. He was a legend on the battlefield. He was a legend as a as a, a king slash governor 
of you know the government that he was putting together. I'm guessing on one side of his roof he could stand and he could hear the, the worship that was going on in the tabernacle. He could hear the musicians. He could he could hear the 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 singers. I'm guessing he always heard the percussions. You can always hear those like I, I hear those, you know, outside the church building when they're practicing on Sunday mornings and I'm outside with a blower clearing off the walkways for people. I shut off the blower. The main thing I'm hearing is is that kick drum. And I'm guessing he could hear that and he'd probably smile because man that's that's man that was quite a day bringing that ark in. And he remembers the first time he tried to bring the ark in and that was not a good day. But but it's here. And 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 that vision, that revelation that he had from the Lord came true. It's it's a fascinating time. It's a good time of day. And he's looking out over his city and and observing life. And again, this is something leaders should do. They shouldn't be intimately involved in every decision. They should be able to observe what's going on and encourage what's going on and come alongside what's going on. And he's looking for ways to be encouraging. And he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So he he sees a woman bathing. Okay, this this may this came as a, as a surprise to me. And I remember uh, when I first read it, I thought, "Whoa!" Huh. But I read it in a in a um, I don't I don't. Was it a secular writer? Here's the bottom line. It's not unusual. It was not unusual for David to see bathing women. It's where people would bathe. Because for the most part, it was a place of privacy. And sometimes they even had, you know, hedges or they'd kind of be in a cubicle. It was where the water could get warm. They would, they would, they would, uh, and it wasn't like a bathtub, right? There would be, um, it was sometimes it might've, it might've been like a big jar basically where they, where they might stand in it. It reminds me of something, something like in American culture, something that you would have remembered or if you ever saw, you'd have to be as old as I am, I guess. In old, in old westerns, you would you would have like this uh, tin, big tin circle that was barely you know about six inches of water in it, and the guys would just sit in it, or they'd stand in it, and they would just take a washcloth and they would wash themselves, and they would let it all dribble down. And then you know in some westerns you get like the big tub at the, at the you know where all the women were at the saloon, and you paid a lot of money for that. The big brass tub. And the rich people had tubs, right? Anyways, on with the show. You he would it would not have been unusual for him to see a naked woman on a rooftop. I don't think that's why he's on his rooftop, but let's just say it's it he would see it and probably be like, Oh, yeah, all right. And he'd just kind of move on. Or maybe they weren't, you know, like naked, naked, but he could tell if he looked out over the city, he could see certain people uh, periodically, occasionally. It was clear that somebody was taking a bath. The other thing that I found uh, in my research is that women who wanted to be a part of David's harem would would take the opportunity when when they knew that David was on the roof or any king, this is not just a David King thing, this is any king, women who wanted to be noticed or become a part of David's, uh, you know, the king's, uh, uh, yeah, harem, they would try to entice a king to see them. You'd say, no, no, not, not in Israel. Yeah, in Israel, in anywhere. They, you would have your own version of whatever the Kardashians, <laughs> who, for 
I don't know them personally, never watched their show, but generally speaking, their name is synonymous with selfish promotion. And women would selfishly promote themselves. It, it wasn't a bad gig. If you could get into a harem of a, of a ruler or a wealthy person, if you could get noticed, then you occasionally you'd have to sleep with them. But generally speaking, you're cared for. You'd get a, you'd get a room slash what's called an apartment. It wasn't like an apartment that you and I would consider an apartment. But it would be you know a couple rooms, a bed, a place to, if you, if you get pregnant, then you have an opportunity to potentially have even better care because now your children could be would be educated and take you know and 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 cared for by by other servants it there was there was benefit there was uh, there were those who were looking for a job to be noticed by rich people by rulers and especially by the king so david's out on his roof he is looking at the city he's observing the the construction he's you know smelling the smells of dinners well probably not dinners being made yet but but he you know, hears the the marketplace going on he sees the city gate and the the busyness that's going on he sees the wealth that comes into the city and the and the trade and the marketing and the it's it's an awesome thing he's the he's the king and he and he's out on his roof and he sees various whatever, on other rooftops, not just people bathing, but just people making flour for dinner, crushing the the, the wheat grains in order to create, maybe people uh, checking on their wine or drinking, whatever. It's all good. But there was somebody who was very close to the palace, and she was bathing. And she was very beautiful. That's uh, that's important. What is it about her beauty? Now, now we'll break that. I, I, I'll probably break that down more so tomorrow. But part of what he saw, I believe, is innocence. I think innocence is probably the one of one of the most powerful attractions between a man and a woman. Innocence is something that that so many uh, try to emulate after they've lost it. When I when I <laughs> when I see so many models, women models, what do they try to look like? They try to look innocent. They try to look young. They try to look un you know unsoiled. Even even if you know that they're not innocent, even if they're in what we would call the porn industry, what are they constantly trying to, to do? They're trying to make it look like it's her first time because there's something about innocence that cannot be duplicated. You can act like it, but the actual attraction of it disappears when you no longer have it. I believe it's one of the main reasons why people were, as far as the kingdom principles go, God's like, I want you to stay together. I want you to stay together forever. Because if you wait to, to till marriage, if you wait till marriage, you will never lose your innocence. My wife and I waited till we were married. We've been married for, it'll be 35 years soon. My wife still carries the passion, the passional look. The when I look at her, she is an innocent, beautiful woman, and I'm attracted to her. Sometimes a little bit more than she'd like, because it's like she's like seriously like we're in our fifties, and I'm like, but honey, you're so gorgeous. <laughs> uh, that's enough about you, Bob. I know I didn't mean to get it. You can if you'd like more details on that feel free to email me at thebobswitzer.com and not those kind of details no i'm not giving you those kind of details good grief don't ask me for that i think that's one of the things he saw in her he saw her innocence 
She was a married woman, but she hadn't lost her innocence. Now, for those of you that have lost your innocence, yes, I think God can give that back to you. I think that's one of the beautiful things about forgiveness and restoration that God's Spirit can do. And I think you can you can definitely have it back. And I've seen that. I've seen people that have been, you know, that that were married and divorced and remarried, and that innocence was restored to them. I think that's awesome. I think it's a, it's 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 awesome. I can talk maybe more about that at another time. I'm about to head down this whole like couples therapy thing, but innocence is powerful. And I think David, most of the women that were trying to get seen by David weren't innocent women. They were beautiful. They were they were, I'm sure, sexy. And it wasn't like an everyday thing, it was an occasional thing. He's up there and he would see it and be like, oh. There's one, but this one caught his eye. And I just think it's because part of it is because she was innocent and she was close enough that he could see a little more details of her than than most of the other women that might be trying to get his attention if they were out. Because you see, she was she was in an apartment that was close to the palace. So he asks. Now, this is the first layer of of complications. David's out on this roof. He's not alone. There's servants that are around him, attendants that are waiting to be called on, and, of course, there's there's officials that come and go off the roof to deal with with issues that that they need his attention. And David calls somebody over, and he says, uh, can you go find out who that woman is? He sent someone to find out about her. Now, this person can't just go knock on the door and then run upstairs and talk to her. Why? Because she's taking a bath. She's in no condition or position to, to answer her door. So one attendant of David starts asking about this woman. Do you guys know the woman? She lives right over here. No, I don't know. Why? Why? Who's asking? David. David's asking. Why? You know, people are curious. Why is David asking about that woman? Why? Why would they ask why David's asking? Because David has wives and concubines. David, like, what is David worried about a woman for? And uh, they're like, well, I don't know. She was out taking a bath and David wants to know who she is. And then there's 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 two, probably two or three people that this person talks to on their way out. Eventually, they they find somebody who knows this person. And they're like, oh, that? Yeah, uh, Bathsheba lives there. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. Oh, got it. So they go back to David. Uh, she's Bathsheba. Now, I don't know if he's still watching her. I kind of don't think he is. I think he observed her for a while until he thought, hmm, people are going to think I'm staring. Or if she looks up here, it's going to be obvious that I'm staring. There's There was something about her that aroused in him a desire to be with her. And he didn't even know who she was. Which is not unusual for fantasy, right? When... It wasn't bad for him to look at her. It wasn't even simple, I think, for him to look at her and be like, wow, that's a beautiful girl. His 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 biblical principle should have been, the kingdom principle should have been, as king, one of my roles is to protect the innocent. My, my role is to protect the innocence of the women of the realm. And in order to protect it, I need to step away. I can obs- I, I observed it. I know. Okay, she's beautiful. No, no doubt. And she clearly lives close to the palace, which probably means I know her, or I should know her, or she probably works for somebody who I know, or she's married to somebody that works for me that I should know. I probably should just leave this, you know, like I should leave this one alone because my observation of her should be that of heaven and heaven sees her as a beautiful, innocent uh, woman 
who, who has value, who should be honored, who should be protected by the men in her life. And I need to be one of those men. I need to be someone who honor, honors and protects her because that's the principles of the kingdom. David had a choice. He could have just walked away. He could have walked away and not been like, oh, David, you're an evil man. You thought bad thoughts. You're such a lustful man. Oh, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? He should have, that's, that's, that's that negative mindset. That's that victim mentality. That's the sowing seeds that will just reap for you the fruit of lust. He should have looked at her and he should have said, whoa, all right, she's beautiful. Like there's, I, okay, I can't, yep, all right, okay, I can't stay. I can't keep looking, but I understand my role as ruler of this amazing nation that God's entrusted me. His, his position is she has value and I need to honor that. I need to protect that. And even if he's curious who she is, he doesn't have to find out then. He could find out later. But you see, he didn't take that position. And anywhere along these choices that he makes, he could have chosen to be like, all right, I need to do the right thing here. I need to, I need to protect who she is. So he finds out who she is. She is Bathsheba, daughter of Elam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now I'm just going to stop there. Not like stop talking, although I should. I, I've been going on for 45 minutes, but David gets David gets the list. She's a daughter of Elam. Whoa. Hmm. That would make her connected to Ahithophel. That's the granddaughter of Ahithophel. She's a wife of Uriah the Hittite. Whoa. All of these relationships, just, just the four that we know, Bathsheba, Ahithophel, Elam, and Uriah. All the relationships, all the connections, just those four connections with David, let alone all the attendants that are slash servants that are already involved. Right there, David had another huge choice to make. He now knows I like I am connected more than I know to this girl. And the fact that he chooses to continue to move forward in his lust is one of the reasons why this makes it such a big freaking deal what he's doing. Because of all the characters and observers and participants in the story, that 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 the nation becomes aware of this. This is this is a big deal. When you find out, this is this is okay. When you find out the ramifications of your choices, the relational ramifications of your choices, this is where. This is where it should make a difference. Relationships are what transform lives. I heard that as a as a young man in my I think I was 19, 18 or 19. Relationships transform lives. I can I cannot find anywhere where that is not true. David finds out who this woman is, this beautiful woman. And, and he should have, in a relational way, that should have stopped him. He observed her. He shouldn't have, uh, you know, he, when he saw her, like that, that word in the, in the Hebrew means he did more than just glance. And as bad as that was, he could have walked away and relationally been sound. But afterwards, he, you know, he sends out for some basic information. He finds out who it is. He should have, based on the relationships he had with those four, those, uh, well, mostly those three guys, and his observational uh, relationship with Bathsheba at that time, he should have stepped away then. No more questions asked. He should have just said, "Oh, whoa, yeah, bad. This is again. This there's no way this ends well." But the but the crazy thing about sin. 
This is true. I've seen this true my whole life. Sin never makes sense to the people who are observing it, but it always makes sense to the people that are doing it. So many times in my counselings that I've sat with people over the years in ministry, or even if they're not, like just people I know, neighbors and, and others that I sit with, you start listening to their explanation of what they're doing, and you know what they're doing is is bad. Like I sit on, you know, in front of them, I sit in front of them and think, how is how did any of this make sense? How is what you're doing make sense? But when you're in it, it does. When you're in it, you keep thinking, no, it'll work. It'll work. It's in a, in a smaller sense, it's like the lie, right? You tell the first one, and then you need a second and a third and a fourth. And by the time you're 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 whatever, fifteen lies in, you're you keep thinking one more lie and everything will be straightened out. One more lie and this will all make sense. One more lie and it'll all go away. And you just layer upon layer upon layer. And when you try to explain your processing to somebody else, they look at you like you're crazy because it never made sense. That's where David is right now. He he should have walked away right there. She's Bathsheba, uh, daughter of, of Elam, which would have made her uh, the granddaughter of Ahithophel and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David should have been like, oh. Okay, yeah, I'm dead. Okay, that's not a good idea. Um, but he doesn't. He doesn't stop there. But I am going to stop there uh, because it's been 50 plus minutes and I think we've hit on enough stuff. And we'll pick this up uh, again next week. Have yourself a great day, everyone. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.